Okay, come on back. We're good? We're good? So, come on back. Where are we? I got you. Yep. So, okay. Great. Okay, so, what I want to do is kind of set up the next practice. Rick will talk a little bit about what's happening in your brain while you're doing it, especially the aspects of joy and bliss. Pretty cool. And then we'll do the practice itself. Okay? So we're kind of experimenting here. We're trying on different methods, and we're training in these various skills and states of mind and brain, and also internalizing and receiving these different states of mind and brain, so they sink in and stabilize inside us. So to that end, I'm going to skip forward kind of quickly. We're going to have slides, you know, you can see for yourself, we have a list here of ways to increase the sense of stimulation. I'm just going to flag this, we're going to keep moving here. Also, there's a way to help yourself be, in your own practice, more and more satisfied with less, or you start becoming increasingly disenchanted at, uh, you know, the stream of consciousness. Like, oh, cookies are nice, headaches don't feel so good, oh well, you know, been here, seen this, done that, right? You become more and more disenchanted, not like yuck, but waking up from the spell, right? So you get satisfied with less, you're, you're more and more comfortable with a quieter and quieter mind. And this goes to Upandita's point, which is that as we deepen in concentration, as the mind gets steadier, we start moving from a focus on um, elements of experience, content. We start moving from sound of someone coughing, my emotional reaction to them coughing, my self-criticism about getting angry at them for coughing, my insight that that self-criticism came from my mom and dad, criticizing me a lot, you know, okay, and that's interesting. Okay, it is. It's useful. You know, you see the flow of consciousness there and the reactions to things that are unpleasant or pleasant, okay? But over time, it gets really interesting is your focus and your insight starts moving more and more to experience altogether and to the nature of experience. And that, in many ways, was one of the Buddha's preeminent insights and innovations in the psycho-spiritual culture of his time, to draw people's attention to the actual nature of experience, not in any mystical sense, but phenomenologically. Experience as streaming along, made up of many parts, arising, appearing, and then disappearing and passing away, based on causes, underlying causal factors, with no clear movie director writing the script, you know, placing the actors here and there, no self inside, no entity inside owning the experience, the one to whom it happened. No, instead, it's this kind of ownerless, transient, dependently arriving, you know, stream of mind and matter proceeding along, right? And so more and more, that's where your attention goes. 
as Upandita talks about here. You just start recognizing experience as experience. In other words, the nature of the experience of happiness is exactly the same as the nature of the experience of suffering. And as you more and more recognize just the nature of experiencing, you get freer and freer in your relationship to it. And over time, the contents of experience themselves gradually lighten up, ease, and purify. But even before that happens, you know, even before the movie changes dramatically over time, your relationship to the movie of the mind starts really shifting. Which is good news, because sometimes it takes a while for that movie to change, right? Okay? So, in terms of doing this, we have, as Rick talked about earlier, the classic jhana factors. These are factors of non-ordinary states of absorption, which constitute the wise or right concentration element among the eight elements of the Eightfold Path. And we're not going to necessarily go into the jhanas here. If one of you drops into the jhanas, great. Uh, If it kind of feels like an intensification of a familiar state of mind, it's not the jhanas. It really is like the Wizard of Oz. Toto, we are not in Kansas any longer. You know, it feels really, really different when you're in that place. And probably some of you have already gone there in your own practice. Um, But we will focus on factors of the jhanas because they're good factors to pay attention to in terms of becoming more concentrated and steadier uh, and more autonomous and free in our regulation of attention. It's interesting that of the five jhana factors, two of the five, 40% of them, involve very intense positive emotion. Now, it could be intense in the form of tranquility, but it pervades the mind. And so Rick in a moment is going to talk a little bit about the underlying neuropsychology of these two jhana factors, uh, the so-called uh, bliss or rapture jhana factor. In Pali, the word piti. You may have heard Buddhist teachers using that word. That's what that refers to. And the other jhana factor, sometimes called joy, uh, sukha. Uh, in Sanskrit, uh, sukha is the root of the word for sucrose or sugar. There's a sweetness in that joy. And it's helpful to appreciate that the jhana factor of sukha of joy is on a spectrum ranging from happiness to contentment to tranquility, which get increasingly subtle and quieter and yet can still be very intense as contentment and tranquility pervade the mind. Okay? This is a lot of practical instruction in concentration that Rick and I both wish we got early on in our own meditation career. So... Um, we're kind of getting into it here about how to actually do this stuff. Okay? So now Rick's going to talk about um, joy and rapture, or rapture and joy, probably in sequence, I forget. Yep, joy, then rapture. Joy and, then rapture. and then uh, why we're doing it. It's funny, you know, Buddhism often gets the rap as the bummer religion, right? <laughs> you know, suffer, die, rinse, repeat, you know? <laughs> Great. And actually the Buddha was known as the happy one. Uh, you know, it's kind of hanging out in happiness. They so spent a lot of time in the third jhana, you know, just blissed out, equanimous. It's, wow, it's great, you know. Uh, so, the, you know, if this path were just sort of a numb end of suffering, it wouldn't be very appealing. But as you know people, they get farther and farther along in practice, they just seem, they increasingly radiate an unconditional happiness, love, and inner peace.
Okay. And then after Rick's done, I'll take you through a practice of these five factors. The uh, one of the, one of the things I wanted to talk about with, about this is the uh, the relationship between the anterior cingulate, which is in the sense where we're pointing with concentration, and the relationship to deeper structures in the brain. Um, and that has to do with the in, with the interaction of uh, of dopamine and norepinephrine and their effects on attention. Uh, and the consequent emotional experience of having dopamine and norepinephrine uh, in your brain. The sense of, in sense of joy, uh, which is, talk, is a, it's a spectrum in somebody's experience, so it's happiness, contentment, tranquility, there's a gratitude quality to it. Um, that tranquility is, is, is kind of key. And the interesting thing about that is that it's a stable dopaminergic influence from the locus ceruleus, which is a collection of neurons down in the top of the brainstem, up to the anterior cingulate. And, uh, and some dopamine and opioid secretion as well. So you can begin to see the substrate of uh, pain, pain, uh, of pain control with opioid your, in, your endogenous opioid secretion, and with the effect of dopamine as the a reward salience chemi chemical in the brain, it's what rewards you for a well done. It's also what helps you make a decision as to what's important in terms of how the dopamine influ from the brainstem influences the, the frontal lobes. Um, a practice to talk uh, to talk about joy here is down here at the bottom. Um, is to settle is as you settle down from rapture. We actually have these slides in reverse order. Sorry, um, but when we do this, because I find even though traditionally often they talk about yeah. rapture first, in a funny way it makes more sense to start with joy. Yeah. So we're going to do it in that way. Yeah. So settling as you as you go in through the jhanas and you get into that rapturous state, then you think as you're moving closer and closer to the idea of moving toward deep concentration and ultimate insight, you, you become essentially disenchanted with the rapture piece. I know that sounds hard. Tough. <laughs> Still worth it. Um, and, and by thinking may the sense of joy or the sort of, of sweet tranquility of existence arise. You actually set up your brain to start to do that circuitry. Um, and then feel and feel it out. Rapture, um, rapture is much more of a, a dopamine reward system. That's the bliss, pulses, waves of energy going in and up the, uh, through your body. A sense of energy is just kind of rising and uh, and ascending. And in the neurological uh, uh, under underpinnings of that, the dopamine level up to the, the uh, uh, up into the frontal lobes and into the anterior cingulate is rising sufficiently high that the brain no longer gets distracted by stimuli. The focus becomes much easier to maintain. Um, and so the and there, there's a lot of literature which we used to put into these slides. And I think on our first talk we went through this in some detail, and everybody's eyes glazed over all the way to the back of the room. So we're not going to do that anatomy, but basically. 
The rapture piece is, is, is a dopamine uh, into, into the anterior cingulate and the frontal lobes. And the norepinephrine contribution is that brightening of the mind. And those two neurotransmitters tend to go together, but they have slightly different uh, uh, feelings. And my sense of, about the two of them, in all, in all honesty, is that rapture is much more dopamine, and joy is much more norepinephrine, just proportionately. So I think that, that that's where the, uh, uh, the sequence comes in. And it's actually part of the concentration practice sequence, as, out, as outlined in the 2,500-year-old Buddhist uh, pattern of meditation. And again, it's, it's something that has to go to, where you go for this to figure this out is looking at literature on the neurochemistry of attention. A lot of it has been done with rats and, and all kinds of other things, but it's, and all, all kinds of other animals. But it turns out that the, the chemistry maps again, to the experience of the meditative state. That's great. So we're going to try an experiment here, in effect. And why not go for it, right? Here you are. Let's do it. So where am I here? Okay, here we go. So the way I'm going to do this is especially emphasizing four of the five factors because the rapture or bliss factor, some people in my experience are very amenable to it. They just kind of go into bliss. It's an embodied experience. There's often a sense of rushes of it, often a rising quality. Uh, Who knows? Kundalini energy, don't know, but stuff like that. Other people don't have much access to that until they've done you know, four or five days in a row of a fairly serious meditative concentration-oriented retreat. So here we are going for it uh, in this setting in probably about a 30-ish minute practice. If you don't have much access to uh, any or a sense of rapture or bliss, it's really okay. All right? It really is okay. You might experience, and I'll give you some suggestions that I use for myself, kind of some pulses of it, some rushes of this. Uh, you may find yourself uh, really sinking into this sense of intense pleasure in the body and a kind of energized, wow, this is amazing. You mean no drugs are involved? You know, kind of state of mind, that's cool. But if that doesn't happen for you and it's not that common, uh, it's really okay. Okay? All right. All right, so let's give this a a whirl. So we're going to draw on some of the strengths you've already been developing here. So to begin with, finding some object of attention. This is a concentration practice, so it's muscular. We're We're going to do it. It's a little bit like lifting a weight or doing a sustained hold in yoga. Uh, We're either doing it or we're not doing it. And if we're not doing it, it's okay. Come back to doing it as best you can. If it helps to stand or move even slowly or gently for yourself, that's okay. So to begin with, finding your object of attention. And it helps to pick one and stay with it. As we proceed, I'll mention that it's okay to shift to rapture or joy 
or even singleness of mind as your object of attention. That is a skillful move often in meditation. But before then, it will help you to strengthen, to kind of, I think of it as charging the battery of concentration, to have one object of attention you devote yourself to, renouncing all other lovers, as it were. Okay? Uh, I'll refer to the breath. If you want to use an image, you could use the Buddha in the front of the room. You could use a word, uh, a memory. You know, maybe Tuolumne Meadows is your object of attention. Right? But I'll speak about the breath. So here we go. Applying attention to your object of attention. And also sustaining attention. So applying, sustaining, reapplying as needed. With the breath, classically, applying attention to the beginning of an inhalation or exhalation. And then sustaining attention over the course of the inhalation or exhalation. And then applying attention again at the beginning of the next inhalation or exhalation that follows. You're finding that sweet spot, as the Buddha put it, where we should not be either too tight or too loose in our practice. So I'll be quiet here for some moments as you sink more and more into applying and sustaining attention, only doing the minimum necessary to become increasingly continuously absorbed in your object of attention. Receiving your object of attention, letting it come to you, 
other things falling away as you apply and sustain attention to your object, becoming absorbed in it, immersed in it, one with it. Making the minimum necessary effort to apply and sustain attention. Finding an object of attention that's stimulating enough to help you stay with it, such as being aware of the sensations of breathing in the whole chest or the whole body. Knowing that you can always adapt my suggestions to your own purposes and needs. Now I'll suggest seeing if you can open to and even find some kind of well-being or other positive feelings in the breathing or whatever your object of attention is. So along with The breathing could be some gratitude, maybe some happiness 
or pleasure in your own body. Perhaps lovingness or warm-heartedness along with sustaining awareness of breathing. Somewhere along in here, it's okay to start making happiness or some aspect of it your new object of attention. There may be other things present in the mind, including unhappiness, and that's normal. But as skillful means, not based on craving and clinging, opening to whatever lifts your heart. Perhaps gratitude. Thinking about your children, your cat. Perhaps a sense of awe, the sweetness of life. In other words, you're deliberately opening to and encouraging as strong a feeling of happiness or related emotions as can occur here without tipping into stressfulness or tension about it. Gratitude. Memories of fun, humor, as Thich Nhat Hanh suggests, perhaps a half smile on your face. You can do the invocation in your mind quietly to yourself. May sukha arise. May well-being arise. May happiness arise. May love arise. 
If you want, you can try breathing a little more vigorously to bring up some energy of positive emotion. As you can, opening your mind to becoming increasingly awash in happiness or related positive emotions. Happiness, broadly defined, one aspect or another, as your object of attention, becoming absorbed in happiness. Perhaps thankfulness for your teachers and friends. Perhaps imagining being in places or doing things that help you be happy. or simply giving yourself over to the feeling itself. And then, which may have already become, begun naturally happening for you, letting the happiness, which can feel quite energized, settle into a quieter, but in some ways even more beautiful feeling of contentment, a sense of well-being with no wish for the moment to be anything other than what it is. Marinating in contentment, becoming absorbed in it, pervading your mind as the next object of attention.
Other things may be present, such as physical pain or worry, and see if they can be held in or afloat in a vast sea of contentment. Doing little gentle things in your mind to help your mind stop chasing after the next thing to want. Helping yourself abide enjoyably and pleasantly in this moment as it is with well-being and no problem. And then letting your mind become increasingly tranquil. As the Buddha put it, that highest happiness, which is peace. Tranquility pervading your mind. In other words, moving from contentment to an even more profound stillness of tranquility. Becoming absorbed in tranquility. The mind quieting.
experiences, sounds, moving through a space of stillness. The sense of tranquility being the object of attention, immersing in becoming tranquil. alert and tranquil. And then sustaining probably some natural sense of tranquility, locating that sense of experience as a whole that we explored previously. A whole tranquil body breathing as a whole.
kind of coming home, landing, being here, kathunk, one unified experience. Colored probably with some tranquility, contentment, and happiness, perhaps. And fundamentally becoming absorbed in, as your object of attention, the sense of unification of consciousness, experience as a whole. Without attachment to anything in experience, without attachment to any aspect of experience, simply being unified. Giving yourself over to this sense, whatever it is for you, of stable, unified presence, ongoing.
in the last couple minutes here in whatever quality of stable, unified presence is here. See if you can open to and encourage some qualities of lovingness rippling out from you naturally as, as natural elements of abiding as presence, a warm-heartedness, a caringness rippling out in waves from you. Seeing if you can find a warm-hearted lovingness as a natural aspect of embodied, stable presence. In the last minute here, if you want, you can gently open your eyes, including the room around you, people nearby. Experimenting with moving your body a little bit if you want. <coughs> and then if you'd like in the last half minute or so, Join me in standing up and seeing what it's like to keep meditating. Centered, loving, present, standing.
It's okay to move a little in your own place and experiment with integrating bits of movement with centered, warm-hearted presence. And last, only as much as you like, you might let your eyes wander and make contact with others. If you don't want to, it's okay. Seeing what it's like to bring other people into your sense of embodied presence. Wash in wishing them well. Knowing they're wishing you well too. Thank you. Because we're going for it, and there are about 45 minutes left today, and we're going to end very close to five sharp. So I would appreciate you staying to the sweet end, unless you urgently need to leave sooner. We thought we could invite any brief comments or questions related to what we did, and then we're going to segue further into a roadmap from the Buddha. All right, please. Do you want to? Thank you. That's very wonderful. I have practiced for quite some time, and I can, it's not hard for me to become to a quiet place, but I have a very hard time getting to the rapture and the joy. And for many years, I thought that I was a very, like, a lost spiritual seeker because I just didn't get there. At some point, I completely gave up on it. But now that you brought it back, I'm wondering if you have any guidance for me that would help me to get there. Sure. Well, thank you. And I uh, made a call to skip the rapture section. So I just went right past it because it just didn't feel right. The room was so quiet when we got to tranquility. I thought, forget it. Um, Well, first off, if you can access positive emotion, like tranquility or happiness, uh, or loving kindness, or happiness for the welfare of others, you know, mudita, so forth, those are very useful objects of attention. And I would say in my own practice, there were three, you know, major upticks. Uh, uh, The first was around steadiness, working with concentration. Second was really appreciating the power for practice of positive emotion, including tranquility or gratitude or 
Just like listening to kids laugh, like I'm happy they're laughing, you know? That's useful. And then the third big step for me was around generosity, really looking for ways to be generous. And appreciating generosity as a profoundly important aspect of practice. So if you can, whatever you can access is useful for you. I've known people that are, I think, really far along in practice. They've had very little sense of bliss. They're just, they don't do that. Or maybe they've, they've just gotten quieter and bliss feels kind of overwhelming almost. So it's okay. Uh, if a person's never done a concentration retreat, never done a long meditation retreat, like a week or longer, and you're up for it, that's a really nice setting in which to really deliberately build up the battery charge of sustaining and applying attention. And then kind of when you feel like you know, your battery's really charged up, you can play around with inhaling a little more intensely, if you want, some of my methods, tightening your muscles at the base of your spine or your belly, just, and see if you can get something going. And then once it stabilizes, uh, you know, see what happens. Um, don't get attached to it, da-da. And, you know, you'll recognize that after a while, it's like, it's almost overwhelming. Like, whoa, please, no more bliss. <laughs> you know, really, seriously, people talk about it. Just give me some old-fashioned happiness, gratitude, beauty, please. Oh, even better, contentment, tranquility, you know. That's what I would suggest. But it's no accident that of the seven factors of awakening, the Buddha laid out, he put rapture there. You know, there's a lot about it that rapture helps concentrate the mind and kind of blows out the cobwebs, and it really convinces us, whoa, this stuff's for real. It's not just about being, you know, more self-aware and nicer. There's a lot to be said for that. But it's a, ultimately, it's an absolutely transforming, radical path of complete awakening. That involves, you know, usually some non-ordinary experiences along the way. Just because they're pitfalls with those non-ordinary experiences. People can get attached to the bliss, whatever. Okay, recognize the pitfalls, but stay on the path. Just don't fall in the pit, you know. And rapture, bliss, joy is part of the path. So, okay. Maybe another comment or question, then we're going to start segueing. I don't want to get too verbal here. All right. But one, actually, one last little thing. What's really funny to think about, you can understand how bliss is intense. Even happiness can be intense, right? But imagining how in the world could tranquility or contentment be intense? And they're intense if they pervade your mind. You can give your mind over to tranquility, and it's like, oh my God, this feels so good. You know, the metaphor of the mountain pool, mountain pond, perfectly still. Wow, thank you. You know, that's all that's there. That's an object of deep absorption. Okay. Can you explain a little bit the difference, or maybe how they're related, concentration as a laser-like focus on something, and concentration, how you're explaining it, that's more uh, holistic and almost unfocused and widening? Right. It's a great question. And the word concentration, including, I believe, in the Buddhist contemplative tradition, is used in two ways. One, as a kind of penetrating insight into the increasingly granular 
phenomenology of experience. You start recognizing experience as kind of foamy. To me, I think of it a little bit like a glass of soda water. If you look at the surface of the soda water, you see all these bubbles. And imagine slowing it down like a movie, super slow-mo. You know, one second divided into a thousand slices, you know, really slow. You would start seeing these bubbles emerge, you know, come up to the surface, burst. Their ripples would move out, touch other bubbles, right? A lot of little bubbles coming and going. And that's like the surface of consciousness. And so with concentration, your mind gets quieter and things slow down and you start seeing it more and more. You just start seeing all these bubbles pop, 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 you know. And if we were to look at it, the glass of water, not top down, but from the side, then we could see what's happening under the waterline of consciousness, the underlying neuro, molecular, chemical processes, electrical too, that are causing those bubbles to rise, you know, and then pop, 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 pop. So concentration is often used to really enable us to see more and more into that granular quality. And we start seeing into the deep nature of experience, of any experience. So we become increasingly free with any experience because we see the nature of all experience. And if you're so inclined, and this is where it gets really kind of outside the natural frame, perhaps you start also having some intuition of a space of unconditionality always just prior to what emerges as conditioned in this reality. The Buddha referred to unconditionality, the deathless, the timeless, that which doesn't change, that which is not subject to arising and passing away. But by the nature of unconditionality, it's really beyond language, so he deliberately avoided speaking very much about it. But sometimes what happens is you start to, people do, like, whoa, Right? Whoa. (laughs) And if that's real, super cool, because there's more and more freedom there, because it's unconditioned. It's not yet congealed into actuality with the emerging edge of now, eternally, forever, etc. Okay. (laughs) Second, we become more concentrated. You know, like a good sauce, you boil it down, you become more concentrated. You become, and and so we're using that term both ways, especially the latter way. You become kind of more concentrated in your own present. Um, More and more, it's kind of like there's a stillness through which movement occurs. You know, you have more and more access to that stillness. It becomes more and more your rootedness, kind of, you know. And you're still participating in life, but there's more and more of a stillness through which things are happening. Every bit helps. I look to people that are farther along than I am on the path and go, what's going on over there? Like, ultimately, what's going on in the brain of a Buddha? Or someone who's saintly or deep in practice including people outside of conventional religious or spiritual traditions who are just seem, wow, you know. And, um, you know, we help ourselves along the way, right? And we become increasingly concentrated in both senses of the word. 
Okay. Okay. Great. How about we keep going? Because we're not done yet. We're not done with you yet. So drawing on these methods, and Rick's going to talk about this part. The Buddha laid out a very interesting roadmap. He had several, but this is one that's very useful because it's very psychological. He says, basically, we engage a process in which the mind becomes steadied. We've done a lot about that. Applying and sustaining attention increasingly effortlessly. Minimum necessary effort. And then second, there's an increasing quieting, tranquilizing of the mind and body and emotion. And then increasingly coming into that fifth jhana factor, singleness, unification of consciousness. And then that's the basis for deep concentration and liberating insight. Kind of a nice path. And you can follow this path even in a 45-minute meditation at home. You probably won't tip into the jhanas, but you can track this path a significant extent even at home. So Rick's going to take us through that now. And then we'll end really close to 5 o'clock, mm-hmm. maybe with a little more time just before the end for more questions or discussion. So building from the beginning practices of compassion and focus and building on the jhana factors of applying attention, sustaining attention, allowing rapture and joy and tranquility to arise. The roadmap from the Buddha says that it goes this way. The mind is steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated, and that that process carried forward leads many instances to liberating insight. So we've talked a lot about how to stabilize attention, how within the context of that stabilized and sustained attention we can allow a sense of tranquility on the, on the zafu to show up. During that, in that tranquility, probably may have experienced with Rick's, during Rick's meditation, there's little verbal or emotional activity. It's like the, the language part of the brain just goes, and a lot of that internal self-talk disappears. The single, the singleness is that integrative awareness, minimal thought, very, very deep, very almost effortless engagement with that target of attention. <coughs> the idea being that as one begins to concentrate and to, and to use that laser point of awareness, or the laser focus of attention, the object that one is paying attention on expands to fill the entire consciousness. 
So the, the it's, it's like the the laser spreads out and you dive into the laser. I'm sort of another answer to your question. And it, and the thing that you are focused on, all other things vanish. And you begin to get also the ability to skillfully apply that, no matter what is happening, to whatever it is you wish to bring as the object of attention. And begin to get some skill in moving that. So, uh, let's do it. Let's go back. Let's go back. No, let's do it. He's hungry for it. He, he. <laughs> desire, desire. <laughs> so, let's go back to the. Let's go back. I'm glad that we did not have too many questions because I want to bring you back to your somatic sense of a few minutes ago. So take up your seat. Find that object of attention again. Maybe pick a new one. And it's actually good that we had the interruption because now you can see that you can reestablish that steadiness. So bring your attention to your object of focus, to your casino. Bring yourself into your body. attention to that object. Sustain your attention. Feel that object expand into your entire mental universe. Feel the beginnings of ease staying with your object of attention. Feel the joy and rapture of that ease in staying with. Begin to permeate your being. Feel the calm, tranquility underneath the joy and rapture. Yet permeating the joy and the rapture and the attention. 
and with the tranquility, feel that internal steadiness. Allow yourself to feel that sense of personal empowered presence. I can be with my breath. I can sustain my attention on the breath for as long as I choose. I am aware. I am awake. in this steadiness. Notice the quiet. Notice that deep internal silence. imbued with the energy of being alive. Nothing to do about it. No sense of anything other than being with. Absolutely quiet, rippleless forest pool. that quiet, tranquil space, still absorbed with the breath,
allow yourself to be aware of all the little fine differences in the breath. At a, at a large level, all breaths are not the same. But even in one breath, this part, this part of the inhale is not like the next millisecond. Each point of awareness is new. <coughs> now. 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 for the next few minutes. Allow this experience just to happen. And know that the lessons from just allowing it to happen will come back to you later. Just let it be now. Let yourself be aware right now.
letting go. Letting go of clinging, letting go of craving. Jack Cornfield's primary teacher, Ajahn Chah, said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. And if you let go completely, you'll be completely happy.
be safe. May we be happy. May we be healthy in body and mind and soul and spirit. May we know love and joy and wonder and wisdom in this life just as it is. May we awaken and be free. We're finishing up here, and before we do that, though, I'd, I'd like to express my gratitude, and I, I believe our gratitude, for Spirit Rock and for its staff, like Sean, and as well as very much the volunteers, people who've offered their time, and all the people who have helped uh, bring this center into being have offered their contributions to the new buildings that you've probably seen out there. Uh, and the people going further and further back uh, in our own lineages of uh, Buddhism or science or uh, good-heartedness altogether, uh, you know, the, the beings back there who've kind of handed on the torch all along the way. We're very grateful to them and to you. Yeah. for being here with such sustained attention, covering a lot of material. Uh, the Buddha talked about his approaches being good in the middle, good in the beginning, and good at the end. And uh, if this is the beginning for you, this could have been quite a stretch, but we thought, what the heck, let's lay it out. <laughs> um, if you're in the middle, these are probably really good practices to invest in if they're not really stabilized yet for you. And if you're more toward the end, well, blessings to you. <laughs> and I hope to learn from you May as well. May we trade seats and you can sit up here. So one last thought for me, and then I'll give yeah. you the last word. Um, uh, for me, there's a saying that's common. You may know it. It says, uh, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Saying in Tibet and elsewhere. And I think that's really a beautiful saying because that's what's available to us. The next minute, which is, I think, probably the most important minute of our life because it's the one we can do something about. The minutes in the past we can't do much about. This moment, once it's become actualized into reality, it is what it is. It's determined. It's conditioned. More than a few minutes in the future, we don't have much influence. But the next minute, the one that's under our nose, minute after minute after minute, that's the most important minute of our life. What will we do with that minute? And the Buddha calls us to, as he says here, Think not lightly of good, 
saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, breath by breath, synapse by synapse, fills oneself with good. And that's a path with heart. That's both a beautiful opportunity and old school here. It's on us what we make use of that opportunity. No one else can do our practice for us. And yet if we do our own practice, filling ourselves up, drop by drop, we have more and more that overflows to help other beings as well. Hmm. It's been really lovely to sit with you today. Um, I know I'm actually feeling very blessed uh, to having had the chance be with Rick again, sit with you. Um, I think of the, of the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, the Buddha, as, they, as, as you know, is a statement that enlightenment is possible for a human being. The Dharma is that path, all its complexities and all its moments. But I think the real, the real heart of the path is actually Sangha. It's the sense that you don't do this alone. And although it's up to each of us individually to make the best of what we were born with, and the best of the history that we have up until now. It's also a great source of joy for me that I know that no matter where I am, you are out there. To paraphrase Isaac Newton, if I have seen deeply into myself, it is because I have sat on the shoulders of giants. Three rings, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Take good care. Keep filling your pot. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.